Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, a first for us, we speak with not one, but two amazing guests, Rosie Hawes and Carly Ramsey, both with the China Division of Control Risk, a global consultancy headquartered in London. The firm's clients include national and multinational businesses of all sizes in all sectors, law firms, government departments, non-governmental organizations, they run the gamut. We start by defining political risk and its relevance to business in China. We talk about the speed at which the government works and how businesses can keep up and adapt to the ever-changing environment there. We talk about the different approach to due diligence one should take in China versus other North Asian markets and how to factor in political and regulatory risks and issues as well. We close the discussion looking at the types of situations that business intelligence, political risk, and regulatory risk analyses can be extremely helpful when looking to do business in China. Enjoy. Any company that wants to succeed in an unfamiliar market needs to test the information that they're being provided with and really needs to understand the extent to which their potential supplier, their potential investment target is is really trustworthy and really capable of delivering what they're saying. In an environment like China, where the public record is very impenetrable if you can't speak the local language, if you're sitting in Glasgow and this is your first effort to have a really strong overseas presence and you're looking to buy up a local company, even if you're fairly small in size, then this is probably a very significant investment for you to fail to spend that little bit extra to get real comfort that you're working with the right company would be quite foolish. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technology. Carly, Rosie, welcome you both to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Todd. Happy to be here. Thank you, Todd. So this is our very first episode after over 110 episodes, the very first episode that we've actually had two guests on the show. So I'm really excited and also just a little bit nervous to see how this is going to go. Now, I want to start, as we usually do, with a little bit of an understanding of who our guests are and how they ended up at China. So, Carly, why don't you go first, talk to us about your path to China, and then, Rosie, you can follow up after. I didn't expect to be in China. I think that's that's a, that's a path that a lot of expats um, have, actually. I, I did a master's degree in foreign policy um, in Washington, D.C., and I was fully expecting to be employed in some type of career in, in foreign policy within Washington, D.C., or even in Ottawa. Um, but I graduated at the height of the financial crisis, and high, times were tough um, back then. There was not a lot of hiring going on. And so I just thought, well, why don't I go to, why don't I go to China uh, and see what's going on there? Surely it can't be as bad <laughs> as it is here, as it was there. And so I did. I just went to China. Um, I found a position doing public affairs in Beijing. Um, and I thought what would be a year as I kind of waited out the financial crisis in the West um, turned into 13. So that's how I ended up here. 
And Rosie? So a little bit like Carly, my degree, my undergraduate degree is in Russian. I speak Russian and I lived in Moscow for 12 years. And then I was starting to think um, maybe there's more to the world and a chance to help in our Shanghai office came up in 2014. So I came here for six weeks thinking, you know, I'll go on and do something else. And then, uh, of course, luckily, they uh, encouraged me to stay. So I've been here in, in Shanghai ever since. Yeah, I would have to double down on what Carly said off the top is that I don't think a lot of expats end up planning to be in China, but it does kind of grab you and it does um, suck you in. And it is just so interesting and moving so fast. And there's um, it's one of the most interesting places on the planet. And it has been for a majority of my adult life. And I'm, I'm sure for you, for you as well, that's so involved and so impactful in so many different areas around the world. So um, I, I can appreciate that. And, and, and it was part of my um, my background. I never I, I went to China on purpose, but staying there and building a life there for a while, that was definitely not on the roadmap. So I completely agree with that. We're going to start with an introduction to control risks and the work that your organization does. So, Rosie, I'm going to come to you for maybe a broader view of control risks USP. And then, Carly, I'll bring you in just after maybe to dig a little deeper and describe how you're bringing that USP to bear in China and what the China USP is in other markets. Okay, thanks, Todd. So, Control Risks is a specialist risk consultancy, but... Our origin story is quite interesting, so I'll just start with that. So we've been operating for just over 40 years, and our four founders uh, previously were ex-SAS, so ex, um, you know, the, the special branch, the British uh, Armed Forces, uh, working for an insurance firm, helping in kidnap situations. And um, at one point, they were sent by the insurer to help with a kidnap case in Bogota in Colombia. And they were there. They were successful. They helped free the, uh, the, the kidnap victim. And then they got arrested by the local authorities for interfering in government business. <laughs> so they spent six months in a Colombian prison where they came up with the business plan for control risks. So uh, subsequently, they were freed without charge, which I always think is quite important to mention. And uh, actually, one of them still works for us today, 40 years later in our London office. But that uh, origin of the company helping businesses going to very unfamiliar, perhaps very extreme environments and dealing with very difficult situations that are outside their normal remit is what sits at the core of our business. So back in the 70s, there was obviously a lot of concern about about kidnap um, in Latin America, in the Middle East and so on. So naturally focusing on those issues, the company grew to focus on broader security issues, but also on political risk, which we're talking about today, because understanding the, the broader environment of where these companies are setting themselves up helps them then understand the security risk as well. And then subsequently, in the last 20 years or so, as regulations like the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, um, anti-money laundering laws and so on have been you know, really at the forefront of the, the regulatory agenda. Our integrity practice, which I'm part of, has, has grown exponentially as well, helping, again, helping companies understand the risk of, of exactly who they're working with. 
So it's a, yeah, it's a very interesting company. You can imagine we have quite a few quirky colleagues. In, in the world of startups, we have a saying, constraints breed innovation. However, the story of how the company was formed kind of gives whole new meaning to constr- the constraints that bred this innovative company. Um, that is an amazing story. And I'm so happy you shared that with us. Carly, I'm going to lean on you now to maybe describe a little bit about how you're bringing that USP to bear in China and and, and then how you're taking that that China USP into other markets. So we we are, I would say that we are unique in, in, in China mainly because we have such a large and diverse team actually on the ground here. So those quirky colleagues that Rosie mentioned, so we have former law enforcement officials, former lawyers, former government affairs, government affairs professionals, um, investigators, former journalists, and many of them with decades of experience doing business, helping business in China. We all come together with all of our various viewpoints and our expertise, and we we kind of help solve these really challenging problems that our clients are facing in China. And I think with all the noise in media about what's happening in China and the impact on business, it's especially important that you're getting a viewpoint from people who are here because the reality is quite different than what's paid in the media, to be frank. We're also, we've got a very large team in China. Um, we have about across our three offices in Shanghai, Hong Kong, and Beijing, we have about a hundred people. And we have this incredible network right across the country. So, you know, we understand what's obviously happening in Shanghai, um, Beijing, like the major city centers, but that might not be the reality for business in say Fuzhou, where you have your factory. So because of this incredible network um, that we have, um, we're able to get like real actionable insights um, into like the realities of doing business. And I think that's really valuable for businesses, especially um, as I mentioned, that it's very difficult to understand what's actually happening here with with the with the amount of reporting, um, kind of inflammatory and, and and a bit misleading reporting in Western media. Yeah, that's true. We and we've we've even touched on that a few times, even with regards to technology, talking about the reporting of how much money are startups actually raising from VCs and trying to actually dig into um, the thesis or the theory of why it might not always be exactly true and what do they have to gain and what are they afraid to lose from doing it that way? You you touched on political risk. Um, can you potentially introduce political risk in, you know, what does that term mean in your world? Can you introduce that to our audience? Explain how that concept is relevant and relates to their to potentially their business in China. So it's, it's pretty straightforward. Political risk is just the risk from political decisions, political events, um, political actions on business. And that is very relevant to businesses in China. There is a a political priority here. I think every probably all your readers are are more than well aware that there's a strong political priority to develop China into a modern developed nation. And that means that there's political goals in every almost every aspect of society, um, economy and the industry. And um, these goals are impacting. I think the headlines that we've seen over the past six to 12 months show that these political goals are actually becoming concrete as they as they execute and enforce um, regulations that drive from these political objectives. And so understanding how these political objectives in China 
could impact the sector that you're doing business in and even your specific business, I think is essential. And I don't think anybody here would disagree with that. I think the headlines, the news show just how serious these goals, these goals are taken here. There's a lot. And I think we're going to get that in this conversation, but there's, there's a lot of, um, I think, misconception about how this is taking place and what the objectives are. But certainly there is a a, a political imperative to move China um, into a modern, to become a modern country. And so businesses uh, are definitely being impacted. I've seen a lot of uh, news that comes out that I'm not sure if it's actually something that the government is planning and will implement and enforce, or if it's actually fodder for the rest of the world to chew on. Do you see less and less news items just to make errors for the rest of the world or you know you know is it really maybe moving towards all being stuff that they actually want to do and less of it and less of it is actually just putting on airs so i my first comment is that the the western media reporting on china um and this is just a a generalized comment because there's there's some excellent reporting as well but from a from a general is 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 very sensational. And I appreciate you saying that. I appreciate yeah. you bringing that to light because that is that is really true. They are doing that. I've mentioned a couple of times on this podcast. My wife is Russian, who also speaks Chinese. Um, her Mandarin is, is pretty darn good. She was always able to triangulate this this very interesting position of where the truth actually might lie, given how different countries um, report given their agendas, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I think that it's not just also taking like a, neg- a negative view on what's happening here, which is all, has long been the case on reporting um, uh, regarding China issues, but it's also increasingly becoming where the reporting is factually incorrect. And I think that's um, represent. I think this is partly China's own doing. I mean, there's not a lot of journalists left here. It's very hard to get the visa to be a journalist in China, and then they've and then in part of the the U.S. China spat, they've kicked out a lot of Western media. So it's just getting to the point now where some of these articles are actually factually incorrect, not just negative, negative as well. And so that's I would say like if if your political risk is based on Western media reporting. I mean, it's a good starting point maybe to say, hey, something's happening in China. Maybe we should pay attention, but take everything you read with a massive grain of salt. And, you know, this sounds like a horrible plug for control us, but you should have that on the ground, real insight into what's actually happening in China, um, because it is quite different than what you're reading. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I couldn't agree more and won't say anything more about that because I think you nailed it. Uh, Many of our guests on the show have talked about the speed at which things happen in China. And it is definitely, I think we can all agree, yes, it is actually very fast. Even when you're in China and you kind of get up to speed and you're, you know, you're out in those lanes on the highway going at the same speed as everybody else, it's still super fast and you you definitely notice it. Does does that apply to regulatory changes as well? Is the government move that fast as well? And how does your organization help clients approach the changing regulatory landscape in China at the speed that it potentially is changing? Do you build out systems that are designed to encompass changes over multiple weeks and months? Or are you maybe having to be a bit more reactive because it's harder to predict? Uh, And how do you help your clients respond? 
Yeah, and uh, and I think we've been getting a lot of questions on the regulatory environment over the past couple of months because of the headlines. Um, you know, the education sector. You know, it's the the DD IPO, the Alipay IPO, kind of multiple kind of exciting um, examples like that. And so, yes, like for sure, um, the regulatory environment is definitely the big trend over the past. I wouldn't say over the past five to seven years. So this is not a this is not a twelve to eighteen month trend. This is this is something that we've been tracking really since the onset of the Xi Jinping administration. So yeah, so five to seven years I think is quickly. Um, I've gotten used to it, I guess. Like to me, it doesn't feel quick, but uh, I guess like from an outside in perspective, it is it is it is happening quickly. So those pro- those political priorities that I mentioned, those are long standing. So those are not new. Those are long standing, multi decade long priorities to develop China into a modern country. The regulatory environment, these fee, they, they trickle down from that. These regulations are, are basically the flesh on the bone to speak to like actualize that goal. And that's what's changed is that they have the capability to execute, develop and execute on these on these regulations. So that's been this that's been the shift over the past five to seven years. Companies like your, your listeners here, they need to understand that regulatory enforcement is 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 here to stay. It will continue and new firms and sectors will be targeted. And that is that is just the reality now. Um, but that it, it's also equally important to, to remember that the Beijing does want the private sector to, to, to thrive. There is not a, an end foreign investment to thrive. But there, there is no hesitation now to make sure that businesses are, are, are falling in line in terms of meeting these higher level political goals. And so... How do you set yourself up in this reality? So you need to have the people and the resources that can kind of take in this regulatory environment, understand what's happening, watch what's happening, and then translate that into response within the company. So, you know, how big, how strategic, how big is your compliance team? For example, a lot of our clients have one junior compliance person who's only looking at FCPA. It's not even a a Chinese regulation, right? So I think this is this is where we focus on. Are you set up to manage this shift? That is so, so on point and so interesting and so fascinating. Um, I think you have a really cool job, if I may be so blunt. Um, Rosie, time to bring you back in. You run Control Risks Business Intelligence Practice in Greater China and North Asia which encompasses a number of diverse markets. How are you performing due diligence? How do you do due diligence in China versus other North Asian markets like Korea, for example? And what are the key considerations for MNCs and investors when it comes to China versus other markets? Hopefully I can prove that I have a cool job too. (laughs) I used to do this work in Russia, as I mentioned, before I came here. And so it was a swift learning curve as to what information is available locally and what is acceptable locally, because Control Risks does this work across the globe. And each jurisdiction that we operate in naturally has different levels of information available. Uh, you know, the, the public record in one, one, one country is far more accessible than in another, for example. Um, but I arrived in China just at the point that Peter Humphreys had been sent to prison uh, as part of the GSK investigation. 
he was a British investigator who was uh, accused of uh, selling personal data and other information uh, and, and was in prison for doing so. And so at that point, when I just arrived, there was a real uh, awareness in our industry in China about the sensitivity of accessing personal data, of, of doing the wrong thing, and really a recognition, as you know, we've been talking about with Carly, uh, that that the, the laws are being enforced here you know, and we have to comply with those. And luckily, control risks had always you know, sought to operate in, in, in the white, so to speak. But uh, up until maybe six, seven, eight years ago, a lot of the information that we would access was in a, in a potentially gray area because there weren't the regulations, there wasn't the clarity. And so we had to be very careful and take a decision um, about what would be uh, acceptable in terms of helping a client understand the reputation of who they're working with, understanding a counterparty, understanding uh, somebody, for example, who's making threats against them uh, versus uh, accessing information that you know could get us in trouble, could get them in trouble and so on. And so we take a very cautious approach and a thoughtful approach to what is uh, legally accessible here and what is uh ultimately going to be useful. So a good example, back in the day when I worked in Russia, I remember many clients have a, have a, a perhaps a warped perspective of what we could do or were just you know, behaving like cowboys. So we would get asked, you know, my employee is, is stealing from me. Can you hack his bank account? And <laughs> say, uh, I wish I had those skills, but absolutely not. That's entirely illegal. But you know, some companies still think that that is a way to uh, address an issue and would genuinely be, we, we hear of companies doing this here and elsewhere even today, trying to you know, behave in a way that is entirely immoral or illegal in order to be able to gather information. And so part of the conversation with companies that aren't familiar with China is trying to guide them to understand what is appropriate and what is acceptable here. So there are very strict limitations on, on personal data, which means, for example, if we're asked to you know, do, a, do an asset search, for example, understand what uh, assets, what, what companies, what wealth a company that has failed to pay our client overseas has in China, uh, we have to explain that actually there is no button that you can press that tells you all of the yachts and all of the, you know, the the jewelry that this this company or this individual has sort of stored somewhere. It's a very routine, uh, systematic uh, research approach, which unfortunately, because, well, or fortunately, because of the strict limitations here, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's a very challenging piece of work to be able to find any information. But on the plus side here, the public domain is actually very accessible. There are more and more government databases online. Uh, we do have to be careful to balance Chinese reporting with Western reporting because both have an element of truth, both have an element of bias and trying to make sure that that is balanced is very important. A lot of our clients are not familiar with China. So the first thing they will do is Google the company um, and you know, get get a very limited set of information, if at all, or something that is perhaps you know not not fully contextualized. So they don't really don't understand what they're seeing. So a lot of what we do is trying to make sure that the broader uh, local context is provided, so that they can assess 
how good or bad what is being reported in the media really is. And then we supplement that with what we call source inquiries. So that's reaching out to players in the market who are familiar with the company to tell us what their reputation on the ground is, because that can often be very different to what is reported in the media. So we'd look to talk to you know, potential, potentially to suppliers, to competitors, to people who, to, to business analysts, people who are familiar with, with the sector and can provide that local color again, which you can't get through, through, through the media. And, uh, in China, which is in comparison to the rest of North Asia, people are generally very open to talking and are very helpful and, and willing to share their experience. So we do tend to get a very broad range of, of opinions, which we can then um, filter and assess and compare with the public record to give a really strong overview of how a company has grown here, what kind of business practices it engages in, who the key decision makers are, and any you know, potential um, potential problems that could present themselves in the future that the client won't be aware of. So, and that's very different from what we can do in, for example, Korea and Japan, which I also oversee. And in both those countries, there are, again, very different limitations as to what's available in the public record. But the real difference there is just the, the willingness of people to speak about their experiences uh, it's much, much harder. And so the insights tend to be be far less. And so, yeah, coming to China was a real surprise for me just about how willing and open people are to share their experiences with you, which is very useful from a due diligence perspective. For sure. And, and speaking of due diligence, let's, let's break this down for a sec. Uh, maybe Rosie will stay with you, but Carly, I'm going to be interested in your opinion on this as well. Maybe you have a different take. How should political and regulatory issues be considered when approaching uh, due diligence? Is this something every company should be considering or is it really just for like the large investors, multinationals and those operating in strategic sectors? So perhaps I can take the second part of that question uh, in terms of whether this is for any company or just the multinationals. So, of course, m most of our clients are. The, the bigger multinationals or companies that are you know have have a significant enough presence to be looking to expand overseas but we do work with smaller firms as well because really any company that wants to succeed in an unfamiliar market needs to test the information that they're being provided with and really needs to understand uh, from a sort of neutral third party the extent to which their potential supplier their potential investment target is is really trustworthy and really capable of delivering what they're saying. And in, a, in an environment, again, like, like China, where the public record is very impenetrable if you can't speak the local language, if you're sitting, I don't know, in Glasgow, and this is your first effort to have a really very strong overseas presence and you're looking to buy up a local company, even if you're fairly small in size and this is probably a very significant investment for you. And to fail to spend that you know, little bit extra to get real comfort that you're working with the right company would be quite foolish. And unfortunately, we, we, we've worked with companies who have uh, forged ahead with the relationship, you know, bought that company, uh, started working with that supplier, and then two or three years later realized that they're really stuck and that they're... You know, their investment target is actually 
stealing their IP and selling it to the business next door, which is owned by the previous founder of the company, or that their suppliers are you know, behaving in a way that's completely counter to everything the company stands for. So whilst it's that the process and the idea of conducting due diligence tends to stick with the, the bigger multinationals, um, the the need to at least do some basic checks, I would recommend to any company. So even just get in a local Chinese intern, speaking intern for a week to help you out, but don't walk in blind. Over to Carly. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Carly, how about tipping off on the, on the first part of that? How do you think political and regulatory issues should be considered when approaching the due diligence stage? So I think this is something that is getting a, a, a lot more attention. I think in, uh, investors are finally starting to realize the, the, the necessity of understanding the political environment before making an investment. And I think um, like this, the, the, the exciting, as I mentioned, these, the, some of the excitement that's happened in the space with DD IPO and the Alipay IPO being retracted or sorry, the Alipay IPO being retracted, the DD IPO being disrupted to some extent shows, shows how important that is to understand what's happening here. and. There are real vulnerabilities for businesses in China, and but they are industry and even company specific. Um, it's really hard to paint a generalized picture, but just some like comments on like what investors should be thinking about when they look at the political regulatory environment when they're about to do an investment is is the sector in a strategic area, right? So does it touch on public welfare issues, for example? Does it touch on issues related to national security, um, food safety, labor? These are well-known areas of strategic significance in China. And if you're investing in a sector like that, what do you know about the goals of the government in that sector and how that's going to actually uh, manifest um, in terms of regulatory requirements, right? But you really need to do differentiate between Companies that Beijing might see as posing strategic or systemic risks, right? Um, uh, and those facing specific compliance issues. And this is where that due diligence piece that Rosie does is really interesting. So while your business might not be in a very strategic sector related to national security or food safety, for example, you are working, for example, with a lot of data on um, Chinese citizens. You have a lot of personal information. You sell socks. As part of selling socks, not in a strategic sector, you are collecting a lot of personal data to do that. Of your consumers, and you have a lot of it. And we all know that protecting personal information is a huge political priority in China at the moment. And so, what Rosie's team can do is understand if that business you're about to invest in is is used to taking playing fast with the rules on, from that side. Like, do they have a history of kind of towing the line on, on on compliance? Because that presents a risk, right? So, if this investment that you're about to go into um, has is in a, in a in this strategically important area in terms of regulatory enforcement. And they're known, they're known to take risks. Um, that's something you might want to know about. So it's very rare, I would say, that whole industries are kind of turned off overnight, as we saw with the education sector. That has happened though. But again, from our perspective, these were there were lots of signals and indicators that this was going to happen. And so having that awareness before you make a crucial investment is, I think, so vital um, in China. And um, and and very happy to see that it's been taken political regulatory risk has been taken more seriously now by investors. I agree. I agree. Um, very, very, very nice. Very nice. There have been a lot of books written. There's been a lot of news. Not all of them are widely available in China anymore. But they talk about certain situations. They talk about business gone bad. 
where uh, people, money, companies, technology, products have come into China with great intentions, um, but obviously incredibly naive about the environment and things have gone sideways and they've been they've been talked about in a very sensationalist manner when reported outside of China. And we know that that, you know, from those of us who have been there, that's that's the risk you take. Can you talk a little bit about that wild, wild east nature of there's a lot of risk for sure, but there's also a lot of reward? Um, certainly. So you're right that these cases, these, these incidents uh, have not gone away. Uh, the the, the books that you're mentioning, some of them go back kind of at least 10, 15 years. And those kinds of schemes, those kinds of issues are still prevalent, which yeah, certainly sheds a bad light on, on how some certain Chinese companies and individuals choose to interact with foreign companies. But it also sheds an equally bad light on how naive and unprepared uh, the, the foreign firms can be as well. So we are working on multiple cases at any one time where we're helping our clients who found out that their kind of trusted employee, their local CEO, whoever is uh, stealing from the business in some way, they set up a parallel business. They are, you know, demanding kickbacks from all the suppliers and so on. And people are, you know, making a huge amount of money from, from their overseas employer as a result. And so we are trying to unpick this, understand what's happened and help the client resolve the issue. But really these issues, again, it's not a a one-sided thing. The environment here is very different from the environment in some countries, but not everywhere. Like the, the kinds of challenges I see here, I used to see when I was in Russia as well. And to be honest, if I was in this position, you know, sometimes it's almost like leaving a bag of money on the table. When we talk to clients and ask them, about the measures they've taken, the the process, the thought they've gone through before making this this investment in China, there's very, very little thought given to risk, very little thought given just to having sensible controls in place because they've been focused on on the big bucks and on the money. And rather than taking the the common sense approach of you know putting putting sensible measures in, in place. And also failing to understand advice from their employees on the ground when they can see issues taking place. Uh, one of, I shouldn't call it one of my favorite examples, but one of the cases that we've, the incidents that we've seen on a, several occasions is where um, a client has decided to fire their employee in China for whatever reason, uh, making that decision based on US law, for example, you could know, fire them tomorrow. But of course, Chinese labor law doesn't work like that at all. And so that employee is obviously very aggrieved. And in some cases, we've seen them, if they if there is the legal rep, for example, they hold so much authority, uh, they can't just be fired like that. So they've um, they've stolen the chop, the, the stamp that the business needs and just walked off and the business can't operate. Or they've gone to the authorities and started to whistleblow on all the schemes that our overseas client was happy to see taking place when it generated money. So yeah, it is a, it's definitely a kind of a black mark on China's reputation, but it, it takes two to tango and you'd be amazed at how little thought goes into this by foreign investors. As we learned off the top, Rosie, both you and Carly have um, 
working experience um, in, in, you know, Carly, you were in the U.S. Rosie, as you said, you were in Russia. I'm just wondering, given what you do and the environments that you're doing it in, if you were to, you know, generally point at a couple of stark contrasting differences between the environments, um, you know, Rosie, maybe you can talk a little bit about the work that you've done between Russia and China. And then Carly, maybe you can juxtapose the U.S. and China. Two good juxtapositions, I think. Um, in my experience working in Russia, looking into the reputation of companies, understanding kind of the local tax evasion schemes, the local fraudulent practices, we always found something. I think it was very rare that uh, a company wasn't operating in the gray area just because that was the, the nature of how business and regulations operated. Left there a while ago, things I hope have improved, but I couldn't comment on that. Whereas in China, we look into plenty of companies which are well-managed, transparent, and successful, They, they and behaving in a fairly ethical, responsible way. These tend to be the newer companies, you know, less entrenched in the kind of old school way of thinking, but those, those companies certainly exist. I think the big difference, though, is really the attitude to regulation. Uh, in, in Russia, there are regulations, but they're not routinely and equally enforced and often they are enforced at the interests of the regulator who is looking, you see plenty of cases where they're looking to take a, a kickback. They're looking to you know, take revenge on a, on a counterparty. And I'm not saying that that doesn't happen in China, but those regulations are enforced much more fairly and increasingly so. And there is an effort to try to, to regulate and bring Kind of some some transparency around the regulations in a way that doesn't exist in Russia, so I can see that the challenges and the you know maybe going back twenty years the challenges were certainly very similar in both jurisdictions, but but I think the countries are going in two quite different directions. Awesome, thank you. And Carly, your thoughts, real quick, before we jump into our final wrap up question. I think just from a, a very general high level comment that. You know, in the U.S., businesses kind of fall back on you know the, the the robust legal regime, right? So there's always like an option to sue your partner um, to like reclaim what you feel like is lost assets or damages, for, for example. But in China, there is no there is like the legal regime is not nearly as developed, right? So I think that's where one of the main differences here is that you know you hear a lot of talk about how businesses need to have that kind of trust in place. There's a lot of value placed on trust. Um, because they can't fall back on the legal regime to fix a problem, right? So you have to have that that relationship, that strong trust and relationship right at, right at the at the beginning. Um, and I think that ties into like what you know Rosie's been talking about having like that that understanding. It's really trust what Rosie's trying to help our, our clients understand, like how you trust these these businesses, right? Because once you get embroiled in these kind of complex problems in China, it's really hard to to disentangle yourself. Um, because you just can't simply sue them in local court. So I think that would be kind of from my perspective, some of the key differences in doing business in the States and doing business here. Okay, great. Thank you very much for that. Carly, we're going to stick with you for this last one. These are clearly incredibly important consideration for companies entering the China market or investors or whomever. What are some of the common problems your clients encounter who have been in China for quite some time already, though? And what type of situations can business intelligence and political and regulatory risk analysis be helpful to them? So 
from my perspective, the, the businesses get themselves in, pro- in problems because they just don't um, have anybody in the company watching the political regulatory situation. So a lot of our clients have been in China for 10, 20, 30 years, right? Even more. And um, when they came, they came when there was little, literally no regulations to comply with, right? And so they they have, like, as I mentioned, a junior compliance person who's 90% of their time is looking at FCPA, or they have one government affairs professional who has a Rolodex um, only in the industry that they work in, not amongst all these other regulators that they have to worry about. So I would say that um, my comment to, to, to companies generally is that, um, that they really need to think about changing the way they're structured internally to manage the, this new reality here. Awesome. Okay, Rosie, your final thoughts on that? So I'd agree with Carly that the environment today compared to the environment 10 years ago is just entirely different. Um, however, some of the cases that I was talking about, some of those um, incidences that the companies find themselves facing in terms of you know, uh, em- employee issues and, and so on, a lot of that is coming from uh, a failure to recognize that the market has changed and that regulations have changed and that attitudes towards business have changed. And uh, unless companies do adapt to observing not just international kind of, uh, for example, anti-corruption laws, but focusing on what's necessary locally, that's when they can really trip up. So thinking that they can behave in a way that was appropriate in the 90s is, is a surefire way to not to succeed. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, both of you, Carly Ramsey and Rosie Haas from Control Risk. We are really thrilled to have you here. We are really thrilled we got to do two at one time, which we've never done before. And that was really, really smart. Really, really smart. Uh, that is just so much stuff that that everybody needs to consider. And it's it's not dark. It's not dire. I think it's really interesting. I think it's really important and it can help you be very, very successful. And where there's risk, there's a lot of reward and that's China. So thank you both for coming on the show today. Thank you, Todd. Thank you for having us. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, Make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.